0: It's Wednesday, January the 11th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan and I'm joined today on my first podcast of the year, although not most other people's, by uh, my colleagues Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray. You're both very welcome. Good morning. Bonjour. Sort of a quiet news day or news week on the political front, Pat, but lots of things going on that have quite serious political ramifications. And I think chief amongst those in terms of what's dominating the news agenda, not for the first time at the start of January, but it seems particularly bad this year, is the crisis in our hospitals.
1: Yeah, that's right. I I suppose, you know, the doll is isn't back until next week. Uh, Cabinet is meeting today at uh, Farmley House in the Phoenix Park for... I suppose it's a sort of a uh, cabinet away day. I think there's going to be some, you know, ministers talking about their longer term priorities, or at least as longer term as political planning gets when you've got uh, two years left uh, in the lifetime of the government. Um, This week, very much dominated by, I think, the two things that will uh, continue to be the most important political issues. As we approach, uh, you know, our, in, in, in those last two years of the government's lifetime, and that's uh, housing and healthcare. We had the uh, new Taoiseach Leo Varadkar's housing summit yesterday, which the papers are full of this morning. And uh, and as you say, uh, health care and particularly the overcrowding in hospitals and particularly the emergency departments of those hospitals has really dominated um, the news since the uh, beginning of the year uh, and and I guess will continue to do this week.
0: Yeah, I should say this is not a, a podcast about medical policy or the nitty-gritty of, of medical strategy, but there are obviously important political ramifications of this. I'd point listeners to our sister podcast, the Irish Times In The News podcast, which has a very interesting interview with medical specialist uh, Chris Luke today. And he points at a number of... Strands in this 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 complex crisis. And I, I think a lot of them were, you know, were, we're familiar with them to the point of fatigue, I suppose, now, but they, you know, they include things like uh, underinvestment in the number of beds per capita of the population as compared to other countries, the way in which we use these emergency departments as the channel through which. All kinds of different sorts of care can be accessed which which is one of the reasons why they're why they' they're so crowded at the moment problems which we've been covering over the last few days in the in the Irish Times about the the failure of the system which is supposed to discharge people to step down facilities and to nursing homes or or to care in the home um, but one of the things that um, that Chris Luke points out in that podcast Pat, is what he does I think would characterize as a lack of political will. And he points to uh, a point in in Britain about 20 years ago when uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown together uh, stepped into a similar crisis in the UK and established a system of accountability, which essentially meant that people got fired if they didn't deliver on targets. These were the people who were running the big NHS hospitals. I was just reading Fintan O'Toole yesterday as well. There are, among the many problems, there are Systemic problems of accountability
1: aren't there at the at the top of the health system as we have it at the moment. Yeah, well, nobody gets fired from the public service uh, in in Ireland. We we know that. I mean, why not? That's well, I don't not think that's not something new because it's simply not in the culture of the uh, of of the organizations and in many cases the trade unions that represent them uh, wouldn't wear it the Irish system of organizing the public service has always uh, prioritized uh, agreement with uh, staff agreement with their representatives that one of the that gives you you know that, that that gives you a strong public service in some respects but it also gives you a public service that is resistant to uh to change that would disadvantage any particular caucus within the public service and uh, and, and and that continues and you know as i say there's negatives and uh, and positives uh, about that but uh, i mean You know, very, very, it's not for you to say nobody gets fired within the uh, public service, but the numbers are, uh, are, are pretty negligible. Now, that may be because that may be because, you know, we have outstanding public servants delivering outstanding public services. Or it maybe because the culture simply doesn't allow it.
0: Yeah, I'm going to come back to you on that because you, you had an interesting column on this this, this question of management a, a few days ago. But just to ask you, Jen, I mean, there is often a sense of helplessness that surrounds this, and I don't I don't want want to do that. That sense that there's nothing that can be done. But we should be aware that these are not problems that are peculiar to Ireland. We see similar. Situations across the water with the NHS in the UK right now as well. And I'm just looking at news stories about France um, at the moment and they're having very similar, um, some of the detail is different, but, you know, understaffing, morale, collapsing, a whole system that seems to be buckling under pressure. And that's a system I think which a lot of Irish people would have thought would have looked to in the past as one that works much better than ours. So there are underlying reasons here about the way uh, demographics are changing in a the society. There's more older people proportionately who need more uh, who need more medical care, which many countries are struggling with.
2: Yeah, I think if you look at the front page of the London Times today, they have some really alarming figures about the huge extra level of excess deaths uh, witnessed over the last winter in comparison to the winters before COVID. I think they were saying this the highest level of COVID not being included since 1951 in the UK, and the situation over there seems to be that right now the NHS is on the point of, of effectively buckling. um, And, I you know, that, that does tell us that this is obviously, we, we already knew this, this is not just an Irish problem. You know, we're not unique in the EU or across the world in having an ageing population. But I think there's a comment that you made uh, earlier on where you're saying, you know, we're familiar with this to the point of fatigue. And that's true, but it's also worsening and I don't think anybody can deny that especially when you see the the record statistics that we saw last week and the very real possibility that that 1000 figure of patients waiting on trolleys could be could be breached and I think what people will start asking politicians in particular is what we saw during the covid pandemic was this you know almost like a wartime effort, an emergency effort to make sure that there was enough beds to make sure that there were enough staff to make sure that people, uh, to make sure the system didn't collapse effectively is what happened. And and uh, and that was a real shoulder to the wheel experience that I think people will probably ask themselves, why is it that this doesn't happen now? Why is it that we have to have the same crisis every single year? And uh, Paul Cullen had a piece, I think, over the weekend, around four or five days ago, and he was saying that this time of year should be christened national trolley week. And he's right because it's the same every year. I mean, I remember when I was a health reporter in 2013 and I went into the emergency department in Beaumont Hospital and kind of spoke to people uh, who, you know, were, were telling me about waiting and sleeping on floors and sleeping on chairs. It's it's much, much worse this year from the anecdotal evidence from frontline healthcare staff. And the, the thing that I suppose is the most alarming for politicians, what they'll be looking at is the fact that the statistics are all continuously, year after year, going in the wrong direction. And I'm thinking particularly of Finnegale here, who everybody knows, everybody would remember, and Kenny around a decade ago, saying that he would end this, the scandal, he called it, of patients on hospital trolleys. And here we are. And, and there are a few things that really strike me um, about the debate every year. It always tends to come down to one or the other. People say, well, politicians, you know, they need to uh, bring about a situation where there are more beds. Um, and then you'll have consultants in hospitals saying, well, it's not just beds, it's the staff and it's not just staff, it's the capacity, it's the kind of staff that we have. And and the, I know you were saying, um, pointing towards our sister uh, podcast in the news, and they'll go obviously have a much more detailed breakdown of, of what's happening. But if you look at the statistics, you know, we have more people coming through emergency departments. There were statistics uh, in Sunday Independent at the weekend that there were hundred around 100,000 patients going through the emergency department last year in comparison to 80,000 in 2018 50,000, 10 years ago. And more and more of those are over 65. They have more complex needs. And then we see figures this morning that the number of people over the age of 75 has increased 25%. And the amount of people who are in hospital at the moment who have been there for more than six months and cannot get discharged because there's a lack of step down facilities like rehab facilities, complex care. Facilities; those are the questions politicians will have to answer. Why are those facilities being there, especially Finnegale, like I say, who've been, you know, effectively in power for more than a decade? Why is it that every single year we have this conversation, but there is no new, there is new wings in hospitals? to be to be fair, but there is no new hospitals, there is no massive new infrastructure, there is no huge shoulder to the wheel, um, moment. And I think. It's the case studies really that really shine the, the, the light on politicians, the stories about people waiting, you know, two or three days under a blanket. And, and I think that we've seeing now, I'm hearing behind the scenes from politicians that this is going to be a big feature of the parliamentary party meetings. When politicians come back uh, next week after the break,
0: yeah, I mean we, we can't underestimate the sheer misery and often fear that 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 surrounds this experience for 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 so many people who are unfortunate enough to find themselves in the hospital, and I include in that uh, the frontline staff who you know are under under unbelievable emotional and psychological strain from it as well. And it is uh, a poly crisis to use uh, the word of the moment, but I mean there might be answers there. But you have a very interesting I had a very interesting column in Saturday. Irish Times, Pat, and uh, among other things, you do some comparison, I think it's fair to say, between two hospitals. The hospital in Limerick, which is basically seen as the, the worst place in Ireland to be admitted to an emergency department at the moment, and the situation in Waterford, which seems to be not as bad at all. And you ask some questions about
1: why that might be. Well, the answer is it's better managed, I think. And, you know, there's a more proactive management, there's a better relationship, between the consultants and the hospital management there. The big difference that everybody pointed out to me was that their consultants in Waterford are on a seven day roster, which results in people being discharged over over the weekend, not by the and This is where there's often a bit of confusion when we talk about this. When you talk about consultants being rostered on a seven day roster and uh, immediately consultants in the emergency department say, what are you talking about? We're on a seven-day roster. We're here until late at night, and that is absolutely true in almost all uh, in almost all emergency departments. The difference in Waterford, or the difference up to this weekend, was that the difference in uh, the difference was that the other consultants were available and. Discharging patients, consultants in other disciplines were dis- discharging patients and were in constant communication with hospital management about patients that could be discharged once particular procedures were had, and their discharging over the weekend was a lot more and throughout the week was a lot more uh, a lot more efficient with the result that beds were freed up more quickly for patients that were being admitted through the emergency department i think they were also a lot quicker in canceling elective surgeries and also some things that you don't want to see canceled like chemotherapy and that that was uh, but that th- th- there's a much more uh, nimble i think uh, management in uh, in Waterford, which is something that lots of people made the point to me about in comparison to, uh, to other places. And to a certain degree, that's because the consultants who are the clinical leaders in hospitals allowed themselves to be uh, to be managed by an able, uh, an able management, whereas anecdotal evidence and the results in lots of other hospitals would suggest that the, uh, the relationship between the uh, the clinical leaders and uh, and and management in those places is is much less productive and uh, and doesn't have the sort of features that we see in Waterford. Yeah,
0: one of the things that Dr. Luke says in in the in the news podcast is that there has been a poisonous relationship between consultants uh, and HSE management. Um, certainly, since the I think the the most recent consultant's contract, which is in 2008. And as we know, there's another one on the table, which seems to be taking a very long time to achieve stuff. But I'm going to come back to you on that management question, Pat, because while I think people might understand that there are strong trade unions in uh, in the in the health services in Ireland and that people deserve some protection uh, in their employment, we're talking here about very senior managers who are on really quite high salaries, I think, by, by most people's standards. And in the private sector, um, on those salaries comes, in theory, at least, some of the time, some form of accountability and some form of you know contracts which will be renewed on the basis of performance. That doesn't seem to happen at all.
1: Ah, uh, yeah, I'm not sure the extent to which it happens in the private sector either. You know, true, we've true. Uh, you know we all have experience of senior, are uh, you know we could all instance in lots of places where senior management are seen not to be performing, and you know they are okay, they're. Uh, their contracts might not continue, but they tend to exit uh, private organizations with handsome uh, with handsome packages that 's less so the practice in the public sector. What often happens is they either stay in situ or they are uh, they 're moved sideways and but they maintain uh, maintain very handsome packages you know i think it's a good question and but it's it's it 's one to which there isn't i suspect a a, a very Simple and pithy answer, Hugh. But I think it's got to do with the culture of the organisations and simply the way that business has uh, has always has always been done. There, there is clearly uh, a problem in man in many places, and I would say it's not an exaggeration to say across the health service as a whole in the relationship between management and uh, and the clinical leaders consultants in many hospitals. And unless you get to a situation where they are working together in a much more productive and collaborative way, then I think you'll continue to have these sort of problems. I mean, it's like people often search for simple answers, one word answers to, you know, the question of, you know, why is there overcrowding in the hospital emergency uh, departments? It seems to me that it can be Both things can be true. There could be deep problems in the relationship between consultants and hospital management. And you may also need more beds and more staff, as Jen points out, in the country within a rapidly expanding population. Of course, we're going to need a bigger health service, but you also need a different sort of health service or at least a health service that operates at the customer-facing level, in uh, in much more efficient ways, and that's clearly not happening in lots of places at the moment. Jen,
0: this may be a sign of my own despair when I when I when I look at these things. But when you talk about this rising up the agenda at the parliamentary party meetings, and you know there'll be, the talks will be had. You know, in, in uh, you know at those meetings, I have little or no hope that that would lead to anything constructive in terms of even solving any of the short-term problems we're talking about right now.
2: Yeah, I don't blame you, Hugh. I don't blame you at all. I'd be in that boat myself, to be honest. I wouldn't be if I thought that there was any kind of substantial progress made over the last decade or, or more. Um, And clearly there hasn't been, um, or at least enough. And, and you know, Pat's point's really interesting because when people talk about the solution, this solution or that solution, and I think we all accept, you know, the, I hate that phrase we're always using it, there's no silver bullet, but there's not. Um, One of the biggest topics is the money. Um, And if you look at... Sorry, i going to bang on about some statistics again, but, you know, we have 2.7 beds per thousand people in Ireland versus 4.4, which is the OECD average. Obviously, there is an issue there with beds. Those acute beds are extremely expensive. Um, and if we were to catch up effectively, well, firstly, to even just to stand still, that's going to need a huge amount of extra investment at a time when we have record investment in the health service. I think it's something like £23 billion. um, And then naturally, the conversation that comes after that is, okay, we have a record investment in the health service. It's never been higher, ballooned during COVID. A lot of that's been, some of that's been kept. Um, maybe it's an issue of how those resources are managed. And then we get back into the debate about Waterford versus Limerick or other areas. And and I, I really did read with great interest um, the interview we had with the general manager of University uh, Hospital Waterford, where she was talking about how there is no... Every bed is the right bed. Every available bed is the bed that they will use. People who come into the emergency departments are the priority cases. And she said in her own words that, you know, this meant elective care being cancelled, chemo being cancelled. There are knock-on impacts. So none of this is the is the exact right solution. But I agree with you. I think what you'll see from the politicians probably will be a call, I would say, for some kind of national forum on health care. Um, I think you'll you'll hear this over the next week or two. Um, particularly from the Fine backbenches, that we need to set up some kind of forum uh, whereby this is addressed in an emergency crisis-like COVID-like pandemic way. So that next uh, next January uh, or this Christmas even, that we don't have a similar situation. And you have to think about, cast your mind for politically, to if the election is 2025 and let's say if it's the early part of the year and the government at the time is coming out of, Something even worse than this figures over a thousand if the if the issue isn't addressed, and if we have similar respiratory illness covid all these things kind of percolate at the same time that's going to be an extremely volatile environment for the government to be going into an election and asking for people's votes um compounded by the fact that it looks like housing uh, commencements will slow down from the middle of of next year so uh I think the task ahead of Leo Varadkar is. We say it all the time. We're blue in the face saying it, but it's housing and health, isn't it? It really is.
0: And just a last thought on this particular subject, if you if you wouldn't mind, Pat, there is a there is a to, to be the cynical voice in the room again. There is a view in some circles that this has only a certain amount of impact politically. That there's that in a way our dysfunctional health system has been around with us so long,
1: and people have suffered it so long that it's kind of baked into people's expectations. Is that the case at all? Mm, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because while voters always say, "Oh, health is the biggest issue," can you really point to a recent election in which it was kind of politically decisive in uh, in any way? And I'm not sure you can. Partly, I suppose you look back to the last election when people talked about healthcare. Everybody agreed that oh, slouch care is the way forward, and it was the uh, crutch that everyone in every uh, in in all parties reached when they were asked what they would do about, uh, about the health service, they all said, well, we'll implement the uh, slunge Care plan. Now, some parts of that have been uh, introduced. I'm not sure that we are really any closer to a... In practical ways to a total separation of the public and private systems now than we were at the last uh, election. And I'm somewhat skeptical that we will be by the time we get to the next election. But really, I'm not sure how much people care about the details of the Slauncher Care plan. What they simply want to see is a functioning health service, whether that be, uh, whether that be public or, uh, or private or a health system that functions well and meets their reasonable needs. I, I think. In the past, that health, while it is an important political issue, has often not been a politically decisive one, is because voters weren't convinced that the voters were may have been sceptical and scathing indeed about the performance of the incumbent government when it comes to the managing the health service, but they haven't necessarily been convinced that uh, the opposition would do uh, a better job. So in this, as on many other fronts, I think the political challenge facing the opposition is to demonstrate how they would be better than the government at managing uh, the health service and to convince uh, the public that the change that they propose would necessarily be a tangible change for the better when it comes uh, to the health service. And that seems to me is still a work in progress. I, I would say that there is, finally, that there is there is one way in which the, the crisis in emergency departments uh, could have a profound political effect. And that is if you reach a sort of tipping point that governments sometimes uh, reach with voters, where people decide that the government is so hopeless at uh, managing... Various things uh, that uh, the alternative must be better, and I think when it comes to health and housing, in the way that economic management, the you know very obviously in the 2011 election, the economic management of the previous government been so catastrophic uh, and resulting in uh, resulting in in the bailout that uh, that support drained away from that government in the most dramatic fashion. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, we're looking at anything like that level of political change, but I think that there is a danger for the government that if they are seen in two years' time or whenever the election comes, at utterly having failed to get to grips with the housing crisis and uh, a situation in uh, parts of of the health service, I think that there is uh, a risk for them that that same sort of public sentiment uh, is reflected back at them, that people decide that they simply, for those voters who think that health and housing are the most important things when it comes to casting their ballots, that they'll be willing to try anything, uh, anything else. But that, I think, is something that is not yet decided and will only be decided over the coming two years.
0: Right. Uh, We're just going to take a quick break now, but when we come back, we'll be talking about shit. And you're very welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Pat and Jen are still here with me, just to remind you that if you want to read the full extent of their fantastic journalism along with the fantastic journalism of their many other colleagues in the Irish Times on a range of A range of interesting subjects. The best thing to do, if you haven't done so already, is to subscribe to the Irish Times. Just go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe and you'll get a very good deal there. So that's a blurb is over. Now, I did promise uh, something special um, before the break. I did talk about shit. It's bags of excrement, uh, Jen, being thrown at two government TDs in Galway. have spurred a kind of a, a broader debate about... The kind of the what it's like to be a politician these days and the kind of sometimes abuse one might receive, or indeed sometimes might even feel in danger.
2: Yeah, usually we talk about metaphorical bags of shit, don't we? And I didn't actually think that in 2023 would be starting by talking about actual, real bags of shit, but here we are. Um yeah, so this obviously is arising from an incident which took place last week. It was a it was a packed public meeting. Um, about the Gort biogas plant's approval in Galway, um, and the people who were present. As we know, we've heard in the news, the junior minister Anne Rabbit and uh, the TD Karen Cannon. So what happened was there was a, a protester there who basically said, "If you're these were the words he said on live line, if you're going to bring shit into my constituency, well here's some for you." And he threw what I believe is two bags, zip-locked bags of. Dried cow dung, I think it was. Now, firstly, the one of the interesting things was how we found out about it, which Ann Rabbit tweeted, um, a very um, straightforward tweet, attended a meeting tonight and I had a bag of shit thrown at me. Um, and, you know, I think she just, obviously she just decided, well, you know, that's obviously not good enough. And she just put it out on Twitter. But I think what it has opened is this conversation about politicians' safety. And I think from talking to politicians yesterday about it, I was kind of, Gauging the mood, it it does strike me that many of the TDs and senators presently in the Iraq just feel, particularly over the last five years, that there has been kind of a heightened, um, and an increase in that kind of tension between them and the public. And you know, I was talking to Fine Gael Senator uh, Regina Doherty, and she was telling me that. She has stopped, now obviously she's a senator, but she was, she had been doing clinics and she'd stopped doing those, that she wouldn't do house calls, that she wanted to meet people in cafes. And she was saying, you know, people weren't happy with that. They didn't feel it was private, but she had to put kind of her her safety first. And I spoke to a couple of other female TDs. Now, this is on the back of advice that was given by the Gardaí, um Fresh advice, although I think they had a, a different version of it last year. Um, on foot of that event last week. And they circulated TDs on Monday and, and senators. And they said, basically, here's a number of tips. Um, you know, first one was wear comfortable shoes in case you need to get away quickly. <laughs> um, use your senses, use your eyes, use your sense of smell, trust your gut. And that's what was sent out. And a lot of the female politicians who I talked to yesterday said it was strangely familiar advice because that's kind of what women have been told for a very long time, you know, dress differently. And uh, trust, you know, trust your gut, and like look, look over your shoulder all the time. Effectively, it hasn't gone down very well. Why not the advice from from the guardie? I w- I will say that. Well, I think from what I can pick up from the politicians I talked to, male and female, um, is that they feel that it's kind of condescending in a way, and what they would rather see is kind of a, a more detailed plan or a statement of intent from the guardie about what level of seriousness they take threats to politicians safety out. And, you know, we've seen far more, well, not saying that the bag of shit example is not extreme, it is, but very serious examples of this, you know, the home of Martin Kenny, et cetera, over the last couple of years. Um, and I think there's a couple, there's a few different reasons for this. Two of them tie into each other in that politicians now are more available than ever before in that they're online, they're on Twitter, um, and we can all see what people are saying to them. Um, and we all know what it's like online. It's it's kind of a different world, really. At the same time, there's growing anger. And there has been for a, a good while. And you could see this reflected in the polls about those crises we talked about earlier that are are continuously not addressed. And those two things are kind of going hand in hand. Now, look, there will always be people who do extreme things that the, the rest of us just wouldn't do. You know, it, you're, that, that's, a, that's always going to happen. But by and large, what I've picked up from politicians, certainly, especially female politicians, is this awareness that something serious is going to have to happen before people sit up and say this is not good enough. And also the knock-on impact it has on people looking to join politics, you know, would this be an attractive career option if you're going to have to face a Wednesday night having a bag of shit thrown at you?
0: Yeah, there's a number of different kind of instances of this, the different types of behaviour, I suppose, Pat, aren't there? There's there's this particular incident that sparked the uh, sparked the debate. There's there's the situation of Martin Kenny, which Jen referred to, who has had his home attacked um, by by persons unknown, um, and then there was the court case before Christmas with the Finnegal TD Jennifer Carroll McNeil, which very much had that misogynistic. Streak to it in terms of you know online stalking and abuse and and that type of stuff as well so there's quite a lot going on there but generally there seems to be um could i describe it as a coarsening um of the nature of debate and you know should we just blame uh, as we do with so many things the internet and social media
1: no we should blame ourselves i mean the guy who threw the shit at, at the two tds left the meeting but then came back into it afterwards and uh I thought that was the most amazing part of the report, was that he wasn't thrown out of the meeting or he wasn't asked to leave. He simply stood and observed the rest of the meeting from a vantage point apparently quite close to Ann Rabbit. And, I mean, what that demonstrates to me is that one of the reasons that there is a uh, a growing trend of... uh, attacks abuse uh of politicians is that there is a, a public tolerance to it and uh until that changes you know it will continue to escalate and it will escalate to this to, to the stage where a politician will be uh, seriously hurt or worse by uh by something uh like this and uh and 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 that it seems to me is a real Threat to our uh, democracy. Uh, of course, uh, politicians are fair game for criticism. The but to get to a stage where they are fair game for everyday uh, abuse, often of the most vile kind, and uh, and and attacks, it seems to me, is uh, really a place that we don't want our democracy to uh, to go for. It is fed. Of course, by the license that many people seem to feel that the anonymity uh, of social media gives them, uh, and uh, uh, I suppose that's a whole other issue that we could, uh, could we, we could go into, but it also is exacerbated uh, by a, a public debate that is becoming increasingly infected uh, by Populism, which some people view as merely a legitimate legitimate political tactic, and it is up to an extent, but it's not legitimate where it authorises people to personally blame politicians for failures, uh, failures in public policy, to the extent that that blame seems to uh, uh, they believe entitle them uh, to physically or verbally attack. Uh, politicians. That's not okay. So I think this is a very serious conversation that we need to have about how we manage our politics, what we expect of our politics, and the sort of rules that we lay down, not just for politics, but for broader social and political discourse. And I really have a worry that something very bad is going to happen before we face up to this.
0: I tend to agree with with all that, Jen, but it does then beg the question about what exactly we, uh, because we all share a responsibility in this, what exactly we can or should do about this? I do think that that Pat is right about the rise of certain kinds of political movements, really in the wake, particularly since the um, since the two thousand and eight financial crash, a sense that there is a, an elite establishment who are fair game because they are malevolent actors, they are bad people, and if bad things happen to them, that's they, you know that's okay, and you can see that even I saw that in the social media reaction to some of these incidents. Including from some mountebanks and charlatans who have some public profile whose names I won't I won't utter here. But the 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 real point is, I think if we would take, if we take this seriously as as Pat does and and as I do too, is what what do you do about it? How do you dampen this down? How do you push back against this particular narrative that some people deserve whatever they get?
2: Well, by pushing back effectively, I think what I look, I think the vast majority of people will wouldn't like I said earlier on wouldn't do that obviously and wouldn't tolerate that and disagree with it but nonetheless I think that there definitely needs to be a shift in attitude because there is kind of a feeling at the moment that like Pat said and it, and he's dead right you know politicians are fair, fair game for criticism strong criticism you know and that's what they're there for they're elected by the people they're accountable to the people Um, I think what where there perhaps maybe might need to be a slight shift in attitude is the degree to which how far beyond that, that goes. Um, and maybe it involves calling out family or friends, perhaps, if you're sitting around the table with them and they say, such a person deserves to be whatever. Like, you know, basically calling it out in your own life, I suppose. Um, and, and and that that's an attitude thing. I think beyond that, there are definitely, I, I pick up that the politicians perhaps would like to see more uh, leadership from the Gardaí on this, or perhaps... Better advice than wear, you know, more comfortable shoes. There's definitely a huge online element. Um, and also there's some sometimes I pick this up about stuff that people say to female politicians in particular, which is, well, you're in the doll now, you know, you're a big girl now, um, off you go and deal with it. But like the huge amount of it they don't talk about. It's highly sexualized and and they don't they don't talk about it, they won't talk about it, they can't. That kind of stuff, I think, you know, there's There's a line, you know, yes, of course, you should be able to deal with criticism. You do have to have a thick skin, but you shouldn't have to deal with, you know, highly sexualized, um, um, sometimes misogynist attacks privately in your DMs and Twitter, in your email inbox, sometimes in your voicemails and your text messages. Um, And perhaps there should be a greater pathway for them to report that and to track down the people who send them. Um, so that's what I would say on that. The other thing I would say is that uh, there was one comment made to me yesterday, which I found really interesting, was about how this could change the way politicians do business. And I was kind of digging around on that. Basically, what what I'm getting back is that if they feel, if politicians feel that they cannot do house visits, if they can't sit on their own in their constituency clinics, if they can't have face-to-face meetings on their own with people or have people walk in off the street with their problems, as should be the case, because your politicians should be public facing, obviously... If they feel unsafe doing that, then that element of politics uh, will become less and less. And that's really bad for you as a voter, because that's your that's your route to getting, you know, whatever questions you have answered. Um, and if they retreat from that for safety concerns, it's bad for democracy. So I think there's a, there's a whole wider picture there. And I was told that this is already happening. And Richard Bruton did a doorstep yesterday. And he goes Richard Bruton and he was saying, you know, he goes out knocking on doors twice a week. And he's like, we can't do it without that. And he's right. He should be out knocking on doors. Every politician should be. But they should feel that they're not going to go knock on a door and something terrible is going to happen to them, um, impacting you know, their lives and their families.
1: There's one other thing, just to add to that, um, very briefly, Hugh, that, uh, that can be done, is that uh, people who perpetrate these sort of uh, uh, assaults or, um, or campaigns of abuse against politicians should be prosecuted by the guards. The guy who threw the muck or through the, the, the cow dung, or shit, or whatever you want to call it, at Kieran um, uh, Cannon and, um, and uh, Ann Rabbit is it, a guy called Joseph Baldwin. He is now of Ballin and Ean, Gort, County Galway. He is the subject of a Garda investigation, and uh, I hope he's prosecuted and found guilty um, uh, in court. Uh, I hope he uh, gets a stiff sentence. Right. We know
0: where you stand anyway, Pat. I'm sure the guys will take note. Um... I want to ask you about the Northern Ireland Protocol because there are there's signs of, certainly not of white smoke, but more positive sounds emerging um, in this month so far and signals that there may be some kind of landing area that the EU and the British government can arrive on. In advance of, I'm really not sure how meaningful any of these deadlines are. There's supposed to be yet another upcoming deadline about uh, dissolving the Northern Ireland Assembly. And then people seem to put a lot of store about on the anniversary of the Belfast Agreement. What's, what's going on?
1: Yeah, so we've seen in recent days a sort of acceleration of a movement that began before Christmas with uh, the EU side and the UK side uh, with encouragement of the Irish government uh, signaling that, uh, you know, that, that a deal on the protocol uh, could, be, uh, could be possible or an openness and a willingness uh, to engage in, uh, in meaningful discussions on uh, achieving uh, a deal on the protocol. There's a couple of things that, that um, I think are as yet uncertain, but it is very clear uh, that the, both the EU and the UK government want to do a deal. To my mind, that openness from the UK, the EU hasn't really changed its, uh, its position, except that it has made very clear that it is willing to agree an implementation Of the existing protocol, not a change to the wording of the existing protocol, but an implementation of the existing uh, protocol that eliminates the need for most of the checks on goods or nearly all the checks on goods coming from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, which had so uh, antagonised uh, unionists because they felt that, that it undermined their uh, their place in the UK and that it wasn't just a trade and customs matter, that it was a matter that had constitutional uh, implications. So the EU has indicated it is willing. And I suppose, you know, to the extent that there's been a change in the EU position, that is uh, an important, uh, that is an important change. Over the last uh, over the last number of months, from the UK's side, uh, I think this is uh, a position adopted by the Sunak administration that perhaps the uh, the the government of Liz Truss was beginning to edge towards. Certainly, it wasn't the case in the government led by uh, Boris Johnson, but it is very clear that the Sunak uh, Downing Street. Wants uh, a deal with the UK. I think that is driven by both political and economic weakness in the UK at the uh, at the moment. That the last thing that the stuttering UK economy needs is an exacerbation of trade difficulties uh, with the European Union. So it's pretty clear that the the European Commission, the British government, the Irish government are all moving towards some sort of an agreement, whether that it will be possible to achieve that uh, agreement or not remains to be seen. My guess is that it will be. The outstanding questions, I think, are the attitude of the uh, unionists in Northern Ireland, particularly Democratic Unionist Party, which has, uh, as we know, suspended the, or refused to participate, thus suspending the uh, operations of the power-sharing institutions, the Assembly and the power-sharing uh, executive since last year uh, as a protest against the uh, the continued existence of the protocol. So their attitude to an agreement that would see almost all checks uh, uh, eliminated uh, is is what we don't know, uh, I guess, as of yet, whether they would stick to there is a, a subset within unionism, which is a very hard line on this subject, that insists that the protocol must be replaced rather than its operation tweak. So, Pat, let me ask you about, let me ask you
0: the, the, the hard political question then for Jeffrey Donaldson is he has marched his troops up to the top of this particular hill and he's made various statements about where the DUP stands and what it will and will not stand for. And what you're describing there, the outline of, of, of an agreement which does remove many, if not most of, of the checks that are supposedly causing the problem, but will not alter the protocol's wording in any way. Can he march his troops back down the hill
1: on that? The choice, facing him is does he want to um i just don't know Uh, and that my guess is he will want to uh he will want to row in under a deal that is agreed between the uh the uk and the eu as long as it uh, as long as it meets his basic requirements but i'm not sure whether those basic requirements are Legal changes to uh, the, the text of the protocol, which I don't think he uh, is going to get, and I think he probably knows that, are simply changes to how the protocol operates. Uh, someone yesterday suggested to me that it would be the lightest of light touches uh, uh, would be applied uh, to the operation of the protocol in the, uh, in, in the future. The question is, is that enough for Geoffrey Donaldson? My guess is It is. But can he then get it through his own party? Can he march his party back down that hill as you've uh, uh, as you've described it? That's a judgment he will have to come to in uh, over the coming weeks uh, and months. I detect from London, following conversations with some people familiar with the thinking there on both sides uh, of the Irish Sea, I detect a willingness in London to do a deal and let the DUP. Come on board afterwards, in the expectation that the DUP will have nowhere else to go if the uh, uh, if the British government does uh, does a new deal with the EU. But I think that is a judgment that is pretty much in the balance for the DUP at the moment. There's no doubt that the governments, the two governments, are talking to the DUP and to the other Northern parties, but particularly to the DUP in an effort uh, to get them to uh, to agree in an effort to ensure that any deal that was done could satisfy Geoffrey uh, Donald Donaldson and would be enough for him to persuade the hardliners in his own uh, party to uh, to rejoin the Northern institutions or yeah, to acquiesce with uh, with such a deal. By the anniversary? I think the anniversary is less important than people make it out to be. The first deadline is January the 19th, that's next week, by which time the Northern Secretary, who is meeting the Northern parties today, Leo Varadkar and Micheál Martin are going north to meet them tomorrow. Um, uh, but by that, uh, but uh, Chris Eaton-Harris will have to decide by the 19th of, uh, of January whether or not he's going to go, the institutions not going to be up and running by then, obviously. So he will have to decide whether he calls elections there. There's a growing uh, expectation that he might uh, postpone those elections again. The other deadline then is, the, uh, is for the anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement, which comes in, uh, comes at the beginning of April. My sense is that the DUP will not be worried about whether everybody gets to sell Celebrate the the uh, Good Friday Agreement with Joe Biden in Belfast well, in, uh, in early o- in early April. Um, it's worth recalling, course, that the DUP opposed the Good Indeed. Friday Agreement uh, at uh, at the time. So I suspect that the um, that that re- that that deadline isn't really uh, isn't really that much of a deadline, and that if there is to be uh, a resuscitation of the Northern. Uh, power-sharing institutions and a deal by, between the UK and uh, the EU and the acquiescence in that deal by the DUP. Now, that is something that the real deadline is maybe June, July for the uh, 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 for the um, the restarting of the institutions.
0: Right, so, well, plenty to come there. We will leave it there for the moment. Thanks very much to Pat and to Jen. This podcast uh, is produced by Declan Conlon and is engineered by JJ Vernon. We're going to be back with you very soon indeed. But until then, goodbye. And thanks very much for listening.